the church. I, I lead the team here, and uh, as Becca's just been saying, we are in this uh, brand new series that we started last week called Timeless, and what the video would have done, the little trailer would have done, would have just set your expectations and whetted your appetite for this primary question, which is, given the discussion and the noise and some of the angst around what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and what it means to be able to relate to each other well and the implications of that for gender and sexuality and relationships and marriage and the life and practice of the church. Given all of that, what if there was a timeless design? What if there was something outside of a particular moment in culture or a particular moment in history or a particular agenda or pressure group? What if there was something genuinely timeless and beautiful that men and women could live within and by that caused them to flourish? That's the big question. And our conviction here at King's is that we can find that timeless, beautiful design in the Word of God. If you are brand new to Christianity, that's, kind of, that's, that's our kind of perspective and worldview because we're convinced of the person of Jesus and of his life and death and resurrections you've been hearing. And the fact that he continually affirmed the Bible as the Word of God, that means that we're going we're gonna to stand on it. So that's new to you. You're going to come at these things from a very different angle. And that's okay. We're really glad that you're here. Um, but I would love you to prioritize exploring and investigating Jesus for yourself. And my wife just tripped me up in a good example of <laughs> men and women not running each other quite so well. Um, I'm, I've got loads of other introductory comments that I could make, but I've got so much to say this morning. I'm so excited at what God wants to say to you that I'm going to take a bit of a risk and, and just kind of dive straight in. Um, we're going to be in Genesis 2. We were in Genesis 1 last week. I would love you to be catching up on the series. Um, Genesis 1, in simple terms last week, established for us at the beginning of the story that men and women are created entirely equal in dignity and value and worth. Before that was a fashionable modern idea, right at the heart of God's big story, he establishes without question the equality of value and dignity and worth that both men and women are both made in the image of God, both for the glory of God, both to partner together in establishing the reign of Jesus multiplying uh, physically and spiritually for Jesus and being unified in the image of Father, Son, and Spirit. That was the big idea last week. The big idea this week is in Genesis 2, is that as much as we are equal in value, dignity, worth, and commission, we're also made distinct. We're also made different. Men and women are not simply two homogenous beings that may be culture conditions to be male or female. And like I said, there is loads I could say around this. I did have loads I wanted to say around this. I'm just going to take a risk, and I'm just going to dive straight in to Genesis 2. We're going to talk about what it is to be a, a, a man, specifically in Genesis 2, and look at some of the sweep of the Bible as well. And then next week, we'll do the same thing, Genesis 2, the sweep of the Bible, and look at what it is to be a woman. Yes, I will stand up next week and talk about what it means to be a woman. That should be, <laughs> that should be interesting. You want to be back next week. Um, like I said, loads of things I could say, but let me just say these other little things. Please do see the series as a story. So I would love you to be catching up. Don't just jump into chapter four. Okay, this is a one big story set out over 12 weeks. Please be catching up with uh, Sundays that you miss. Remember the ABCs from last week? The ABCs, if you find some of these things great on you, which they will, today being a good example, use the ABCs as a tool when that moment comes. A is, anyone remember? Ask, ask the Holy Spirit, like, what's, what's happening here in my spirit? What, what, what's hap- going on here? Is there a thing behind the thing? B is Bible. Bible, okay, 
That's what we're standing on through in this series, to take responsibility to, to read it, to understand it, to mine it for all its worth and beauty, and understand it and weigh what is being taught against it. And C was? Chat. Chat. Okay, let's talk amongst each other. Any family, when things are being discussed that are important, we discuss, we talk, we talk about it uh, as brothers and sisters, as mums and dads. So talk to leaders, talk to people who want to work these things through. And to that end, we do question and response after the service, around about 10 past 12, over there to my left. And you can come and ask and challenge or object or query or clarify anything at all that would be helpful. Question and response afterwards. Like I say, we're just going to dive straight into Genesis 2, and I'm going to assume very boldly that we're agreed that there is something distinct about a man that is not intrinsically. I know that's a big assumption to make. Here we go. Verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, or sung, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here's what I want to do. I want to show the the specificity of mandate that God puts upon the man and then show it a little bit how it goes on through Scripture. And I want to look at how that applies to all of us. And I'm going to look at different kind of categories of people, as it were, that this applies to us. So this is a talk about men, as it were, but it is a talk about men, a message about men, a sermon about men that is for all of us. Okay, so what role, because it's not to do with a a gift or a skill or a level of intelligence or anything like that, what kind of role, what's the mandate that God is giving Adam specifically? And I want to suggest to you that a way of describing the mandate that God gives Adam in Genesis 2, and remember, this is timeless stuff in the sense that Jesus affirmed Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as the word of God. I want to suggest to you that God commissions Adam to be a sacrificial guardian. He commissions Adam to be a sacrificial guardian. That is, in some senses, the big idea of this morning. He is to guard the garden, he is to guard the truth, and he is to guard the woman. So, Number one, so we'll unpack what I mean by that, and then we'll begin to, to get into the real uh, root of things and apply it to our, ourselves and our lives and our church. Number one, guard the garden. Did you spot that in verse 15? The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And in verse 19, also to name the animals. A bit of taxonomy goes on, if you, if you noticed. In other words, there is a mandate right there, placed upon Adam uniquely, to, to, to work in the garden, to toil, to sweat, certainly after the fall, but also to keep it. You see that phrase? To work it and to keep it. 
Something I think they are to do with preserving it, with guarding it, with taking responsibility for it. There's a sense of bottom line responsibility on Adam for the garden. Number two, he's called to guard the truth. Called to guard the truth. And the Lord God, verse 16, commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam is given this instruction. He's given a piece of theology, you could say. He's given some truth. And evidently, he's expected to communicate that to Eve and for them to own it together and live by it together, trusting that's part of God's goodness for them together. And if you're in any doubt as to the sense of bottom line responsibility on Adam, you go to chapter three, where things go horribly wrong, the fall, the fracture of the good design, and you'll see that Adam is held responsible because as they're walking in the garden, having both eaten of the fruit and sinned and brought sin into the world for the first time, despite Eve being the one who did that first, God directs his questions to Adam. He asks him three pretty punchy questions, the third of which in verse 11 is, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? He seems to hold Adam responsible in some way for not just the garden, but the truth that he gave him. He's like, Adam, you're the guardian here. I gave you instructions. What, what happened? What went wrong? I gave them to you, he's saying. Not because Eve hasn't got a brain, or because she's inferior, or because we're going to let her off because she's a bit dipsy and she got it wrong. Like you read Genesis 3, the judgment falls as weightily upon Eve as it does upon Adam. You read 1 Timothy 2.14, it very clearly lays responsibility at her feet. But we, it's something to do with a bottom line responsibility that seems to fall on Adam. And actually, if you read the sweep of the New Testament, you'll see that the Bible teaches that sin, in some unique way, came through Adam. It doesn't absolve Eve, it doesn't blame Eve. It places this bottom line responsibility on Adam. He's called to guard the garden. He's called to guard the truth, and he's called to guard the woman. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus quoted those exact words when he was asked about marriage. Paul quoted those exact words when he was talking about marriage. This is timeless stuff. The man is to hold fast to the woman, not any woman he wants, to his wife. And of course, they come together mutually in mutual desire and in mutual love and in mutual affection and in mutual commitment to make a, a mutual union, an equal union of love and commitment. But, but also, but notice in the text, it is the man who's told to hold fast to his wife. It doesn't say the wife should hold fast to the husband. It says that the husband should hold fast to his wife. What is that about? It's not saying Adam should be able to grip her and oppress her or manipulate her or control her. That's, that's the fracture onwards, Genesis 3. There seems to be something in there that's exhorting Adam, exhorting the husband to protect her, to hold fast to her, to, to cleave to her, as the Bible translations sometimes say, to honor her, to initiate his loving protection of her and commitment to her. Adam's called to guard the garden, to guard the truth, and to guard the woman. Okay, let's begin to 
um, unpack this and apply this. Let me just read a sentence to you because I kind of need to land this. Because this account in Genesis 2 is given in the context of marriage and family, you saw that was about marriage, because Ephesians 5, marriage is ultimately not for us but a picture to the world of the love and commitment between Christ and the church, and because the church is the household of God, Ephesians 2, The sacrificial guardian role, therefore, falls primarily on husbands and fathers in the home and elders in the church. I'll read that again to you. Admittedly, it was a long, convoluted sentence with about 17 different clauses. Ready? Go again. Because this account in Genesis 2 is given in the context of marriage and family, semicolon, because, brackets, Ephesians 5, marriage is ultimately not for us, if you're a Christian, but is a picture to the world of the commitment and love between Christ and the church, and because the church, in turn, is described as the household of God, this sacrificial guardian role that is seen throughout the story of the Bible and redeemed to be made possible by Jesus is to be applied primarily in the home and the church, which means we're not really talking about how we're to go about in our workplace so much. This is not necessarily a a thing to take into the workplace. This is not a mandate to any man in the church to, 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 to uh, kind of cleave to any woman he wishes to and have any sense of guardian role to any woman he wishes to. This is about a marriage relationship in the home and a church relationship. So it's kind of about husbands and fathers and elders. And as I said, I will apply it to them, us first, and then to uh, others of us as well. Let me illustrate how it applies to husbands in the home and to elders in the church. This mandate is on Christian husbands in the home, to guard the home, to guard the truth, and to guard the woman. Guard the home. Let me give you just an example. If Carol and I are asleep one night, and we suddenly hear the dreaded like, bump in the night, broken window, door creaking open, you're like, what is that? Or who is that? I've never had that moment, I never want that moment, but if it should happen, what happens next? Do I turn to Caroline and say, Sweetheart, would you, would you mind going to look at what that is? <laughs> no, I don't. Trembling and terrified, I get out of bed and I go and see what that is. And I put it to you that whatever your worldview might be this morning, you know that's the right way around. You know, if I was to say, listen, last week this kind of burglar guy broke into our house and I stayed in bed and told Karen to go and sort it out, I know your response would be, quite rightly, What? Now, what is that? Is that just cultural conditioning around being a macho man? I don't think so. I think God has placed upon a husband a mandate and a power and a courage in Christ to guard his home. Number two, guard the truth. Remember, just keep filtering the application to where you are, but I will help all of us to to work this in. Guard the truth. The stats show very clearly that when a a non-Christian husband or father becomes a Christian, very often his family seem to follow in faith. Happened in Acts with the jailer, for example. The stats also show that it can happen, and we trust and believe in faith and pray that it would happen, but often it doesn't happen the other way around. That when a mother or wife comes to faith, often her family don't follow in the same way. So it's not a case of husbands and dads, you need to be thinking about the spiritual climate, the the guiding of truth in your home. It's a case of you will set the spiritual climate of your home. If you're a husband or a dad in the home, you will. It just happens. The question is, what kind of climate? What, What level of trajectory? To what point? 
So if you're a Christian husband, a husband and a dad, what is that? What does it mean for you to have that guarding of the truth? doesn't mean you hoard away things. doesn't mean that you're the only one and your wife never teaches or expresses truth or you don't partner together. It's a sense of you setting a climate. Do your kids, do your wife, do they see you praying? Do you, do you prioritize getting from work home in time to be able to sit down with your kids and cuddle them and, and read them the Bible and help them to pray and begin to process their questions? One uh, brilliant dad in this church said that he has a, a coat hanger rule or a, co- a, a coat hook rule. When he gets home from work, no matter what the day is held, he hangs his stuff metaphorically, hangs his metaphorical baggage and stress and consideration of self on the coat hook at the door, and when he walks in, that stays there, and this is now I'm giving myself to my wife and my kids. There's all kinds of practical ways to how that works, when you get home, what job you do, where you and your wife are. I'm not setting rules, and this is not about rules. This is about the reality that God has placed upon Adam, which is made possible in the the new Adam, Christ, for husbands and fathers to set a spiritual climate and trajectory of their home. Are you? And what to? One of my great memories of uh, being a child is seeing my dad pray in the morning. I've got a mental picture in my mind of his particular little conservatory, his particular cup of coffee, which I'm guessing when I was very young was probably extra strong. But I remember when I was like nine onwards, just opening the scriptures, praying. Not so that I could see him, because he knew bottom line responsibility is this spiritual home trajectory is is on me and I'm going to set it in the grace of God by the word of God. So husbands, we guard the home, we guard the truth, we guard the woman. Another example. It's an extreme one, but I think it helps make the point. In 2013, there was sadly one of many mass shootings in America. You may have picked it up. It was in Colorado in a cinema in 2013. And a guy went into a, into a uh, cinema and opened fire and massacred people. Horrendous. During that mass shooting, three men, independently of each other, threw themselves on top of their wives or girlfriends, I think. And all three men died. And all three women lived and survived. I don't recall ever seeing anyone say, that, what, a, what an act of outrageous patriarchy and oppression. How, how, I can't believe they would do, why didn't they give the woman the opportunity to lie on the man? Why, why was she not allowed to, I, I didn't see anybody saying anything like that. I just saw people saying, wow, that's amazing, that's courage. I'm not sure I have that level of courage, but that's amazing. And I think all of us, whatever our worldview could be, as progressively liberal as you want, but I think there's something in all of us that knows that's the right way around. The man goes down, the girl goes free. And you can say, oh, that's just all kinds of historic patriarchy stuff. I don't think it is. And you look at Adam, he was given a mandate. You hold fast to your wife. And if that means you get in between her and a bullet, then so be it. Now, that's an extreme example, I know. And I haven't had to face anything like that, and I pray I never will. So for me, it's the little things. Like I, I try and get up early in the morning sometimes to, to give Caroline some sleep. I, I get up. I don't want to. Everything in me says keep sleeping. She'll sort it out. I, I just try and get up in the morning to give her a little bit more rest. And we also talk around what it means for her to have time with God. Like I've heard Christian pastors, frankly, and ones known to us, say things like, it's a priority that I have my time with God and my wife facilitates that. I think that's nonsense according to the Bible. I think a, a, a godly, redeemed, 
Christ-like husband and father will be thinking just as much, if not more, around what it means for his wife to flourish around the word of God and the worship of God and the presence of God as a priority. So, husbands, dads, what does it mean to guard your wife? Any ABC moments yet? Maybe a few. Elders, more briefly on that. Guardians is, is basically what an elder in a church is. Elder, pastor, overseer. It's basically the language is of men who kind of look out for, protect the church from harm. You could call an elder a guardian, I think. Let me prove it to you. Hebrews 13, 7 says the elders are the ones, quotes, who are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Never felt to read that without being very, very sobered. That means that in this instance, Patrick, Mark, and myself, one day we'll, we'll have a conversation with God around how we cared for you and guarded you and caused you to flourish. There's a sense of we're called to watch over your souls, not to do everything, far from it, but to, to have a, a kind of guardian mandate that has been made possible in Christ. That's kind of what an elder is. It's a dad, it's a guardian, guards the home. God's the truth. It's what Titus and 1 Timothy often say. The elders, quotes, protect sound doctrine. They don't have to do all of the teaching. We're teaching one another, I trust, throughout the life of the church. But it is for us to help us protect what sound doctrine looks like. And to guard the woman. That's what elders, dads, fathers in the church, along with other leaders, men and women are doing. I hope is saying, how are the family doing? How are the sons and daughters doing? How are people getting on? Who's flourishing? Who's struggling? Who's thriving? Who's finding life hard? And I'll say this about an all-male eldership team. We have to take a particular care and a particular uh, source of help to ensure that the women, you, the women, are flourishing and thriving. It's not enough for us to say, how's everyone doing? We need to ask specific questions like, how are the sons doing and how are the daughters doing? And we're not doing our job right unless the women of the church are thriving and flourishing and stepping into the fullness of what God's called you to be. There's a whole message at the end of October around the life of the church and how the church works, October 27th. That's, that's that message, but I just wanted to uh, put a little note in your, in your diary, as it were. Okay. Now, I said this was a message relevant to all of us, so I hope I've grounded it a little bit in the husbands, the dads, and, and you men who aspire to be husbands and dads, and I hope I've grounded it as to, a little bit as to what the dads of the church are. What about if you are a single guy? You're like, I'm not a dad, I'm not a husband, I'm not an elder, I don't particularly aspire to be. I aspire to the character, I trust, but I don't particularly think eldership's for me. I want to just tell you a story around from the Old Testament about the story of Boaz and Ruth that I help is going to ground this for all of us, starting with the single guys and then moving into the rest of us as well. It's a beautiful story. It really is. The book of Ruth. It's four chapters. Uh, last week, Caroline gave you some homework to read Genesis 1, which I'm sure you all did. I'm going to follow her lead and give you some homework to read Genesis 2 this week. You can do that tomorrow. And then you can read the, 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 the four chapters of Ruth on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And we'll circle back into it next Sunday, more from the vantage point of Ruth. But for now, I want to particularly shine the spotlight on Boaz. Let me just tell you the story, whether you know it or not. It's the most beautiful story. You have this widow called Naomi. 
and she returns from a foreign land called Moab with her daughter-in-law, who has also been widowed. And in order to, and in order to provide for her mother-in-law, this remarkable young woman called Ruth basically gets to work with some hard manual labor. She finds a field, and she follows behind the, the, the male laborers and basically scoops up the leftover grain as the only way of being able to provide for herself and provide for her mother-in-law. And unbeknownst to her, as she's doing this, working her guts out for a woman that she's no longer actually related to in, in practice, unbeknownst to her, it turns out that the field that she's working in is owned by a relative of Naomi, this man called Boaz. Now, Boaz is a fascinating man because, as best we know, he's single and with no kids, and he's not a priest. He's a landowner. Yeah? He's a single guy with a significant influential secular job, you could say. So this is beginning to see, you can see where this design outworks for all of us. And yet, despite not being a priest, despite not being a husband and a father, he begins to, if you read the story for yourself, he begins to live out something of the timeless design that God printed upon Adam. Let me show you the three ways, because I think you'll see that he guards the garden, he guards the truth, and he guards the woman as a single non-priestly man. He guards the garden. So basically, he owns a field. In other words, he's a responsible guy. He looks after what is his. I don't know whether he had one field or hundreds of fields, but he clearly looks after and stewards and guards the field, the garden, that he's been called to work in. Let me illustrate this a bit more. Some of you will have heard of Jordan Peterson, I imagine. You might have been inspired by him, you might have been offended by him, or somewhere along the spectrum. Fascinating guy. If you don't know who Jordan Peterson is, he's a a clinical psychologist from Toronto University who's made huge waves around the world with uh, the lectures that he gives, the books that he's written, and the the talks that he he holds. Very, very interesting guy. And he's kind of well-known for pushing back, pretty forcefully at times, on the kind of progressive liberal agenda, particularly that around, around gender. And uh, like I say, he sold these books and sells out arenas by, by the thousand uh, for the talks that he gives. And the primary demographic that he reaches is young men. And it seems to me there's a lot better job than the church often in reaching and inspiring and motivating young men. And one of the things that he says, I think his message could be summed up with this one quote. He often says to men, pick up the heaviest rock you can and carry it. Pick up the heaviest rock you can and carry it. And basically, a lot of his messaging and massive conferences and books and so on and so forth is centered around that basic message to young men. He basically says, listen, guys, life is hard. Get over it. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Shoulder a load. Take some responsibility. Clean your room and make life better for yourself and anybody else in your orbit. That's basically what he says over and over again is making a fortune. And it's, oh, there is something in men that seems to respond to that message. Find a load, shoulder it, make a difference where you are. And I, I put it to you, that same message doesn't resonate in the same way with women, which is not to say that you women do not take responsibility and work hard. Quite the opposite, often. But there's a, there's a there there, to quote a very... Uh, uh, an interesting woman like what I saw there, that last, read last week. There's something there that young men are flocking to in their droves. Someone telling them, listen, find your garden, guard it. Life's hard, work out what counts and what matters and what you value, and guard that. 
and treat other people, men and women, with respect and integrity. That'd be 35 pounds, please. <laughs> and Boaz is kind of doing that. He's guarding his garden, and as you're about to see, guarding the truth and guarding the woman. So single guys, what's your, guys, what's your garden? What's the sphere of influence you've been placed in to cultivate, to work on, in fact, to toil and sweat over and make a difference to? Who are the people in your orbit that God has wired you to make a difference to for better? What's your garden? You could be a single guy, age 18, grandfather in your 80s. What's the garden? Are you cultivating it? Are you stewarding it? Are you protecting it? You might have one or hundreds. Okay, Boaz also guards the truth. Back to Boaz. Remember I told you that Boaz was related to Naomi? Well, the, the, the significance of him being related to Naomi is quite significant in, in that sense. And he takes this truth that he learns very seriously, that he's related to Naomi, and therefore this woman in his field is suddenly significant. And the reason is not simply that they are distant relatives, and therefore there might be an opportunity for a nice family reunion. This is kind of ancient Israel. This is a massive deal. He knows, because he knows truth and guards truth, that because he's related to Naomi, he is, under Jewish law and custom, what's called a kinsman redeemer. It means he has a responsibility under God's good providential law to ensure that widowed women who are particularly vulnerable in the ancient world are looked after. And he guards that truth. And he also knows that he's not the closest relative to Naomi and Ruth. So, knowing the truth, he goes through the proper processes. He calls a meeting of the right people at the right place. And he asks the guy who's a closer relative, you're the kinsman redeemer, are you going to honor that truth? And I think, if you read the story, he probably had his fingers crossed behind his back because he's fallen madly in love with this girl called Ruth by now, hoping that this guy will not honor his commitment. And he doesn't. And so Boaz now becomes the next closest kinsman redeemer, the man with a responsibility to protect these widowed women. And in his instance, an opportunity to marry this remarkable woman that has come into his life. And he does. He knows the truth. He guards the truth. He acts on the truth. And he is blessed by it. He gets the most amazing wife. They have a child together. And if you understand the story around Ruth and Naomi, you understand the significance of that, the glory of that, the honor of that, the dignity of that. So the, the guarding of the truth has profound effect on him and his family. What he doesn't know is his, his child's going to have a child's going to have a child. What he doesn't know is his great-grandson will be a guy called David who becomes king of Israel. And from that line, a thousand years later, from that direct ancestral line, comes the kinsman redeemer himself, Jesus Christ. Why? Because Boaz guarded his garden, and he guarded the truth, and he acted on it as best he knew how in his context. Change the world. Change the world. And in between guarding the garden and guarding the truth, he guarded the woman. This is important to see. Before Boaz and Ruth are married, before they have their child that leads to David and Jesus and so forth. There's a moment in chapter two, two moments, when Boaz realizes there's this kind of remarkable woman who's just working her guts out in the field to provide a little bit of food for her and her, her mother-in-law. And he says twice to the young men who work in the field, don't you lay a finger on her, basically. Twice. 
And he knows this is, this is the ancient world. She's vulnerable in that context. Not to patronize her. He takes it seriously, his responsibility to guard her. And they listen. Because this is a man who when he speaks, people listen. He carries weight. He's not trying to undermine or patronize Ruth. He's saying, she's precious. And you are not to touch her. He treats her like a sister. That's the thing. He's not married to her yet. Okay, maybe he's thinking, well, she could. But the point is, he treats her like a sister. And that is where young men, single men, non-married men, divorced men, widowed men, all of us men, that is the ultimate mandate upon us to treat the women in the church as sisters. One day, the marriage that Caroline and I have will fade. Well, not fade, sorry. It will stop. <laughs> <laughs> Love is alive, I promise you. But one day one of us will die, probably me. And our marriage will cease and it will not continue into eternity. But in some extraordinary way, she and I will, as sisters, as a brother and sister in Christ. So as much as I want to elevate marriage, I want to do what Jesus did and elevate the family of the church even more. Any of you love the West Wing? Apparently not. I do. <laughs> it's one of my favorite TV series is The West Wing. All centered around these two terms that um, this American president serves. Anyone like The West Wing? Yeah, a handful of people. My, my friendly American friend back there. And in The West Wing, President Bartlett is about to re run for re-election, his second term. And there's this scene uh, where uh, there's a, ca a campaign, a re-election rally. Big campaign. You know how they do it in the States. Big campaign. And there's people with placards on saying, Bartlett for president. Bartlett for president, Bartlett for president. And this guy called Toby Ziegler, who is uh, one of uh, the president's kind of inner circle, this genius but fractured uh, guy, <laughs> he goes around furious with a marker pen, crossing out for and writing is, for is, for is. Not, and he's like, Bartlett for president? What are you saying? Bartlett is the president. Bartlett is the president. We're not asking him to be the president, he is. What's my point? It's not a case, men, of trying to be like brothers to the women in the church. You are. You are. The question is, what kind of one? That's the teaching of the Bible, is you become unified to Christ, ultimately. That's salvation. And some extraordinary way, we become unified to each other. That's why unity in the church is such a profound thing, because it demonstrates the gospel. So if you're a man, the question is not, can you try and act like a brother might do? You are one. What kind of brother will he be? Now, I said this was a message about for men, for all of us, and that must include the women. Just as next week will be a message about women, but will be for all of us, right? So how does this apply to you? I'm just going to mention a couple of things. Firstly, uh, women, ladies, sisters in Christ, in the church, can you encourage us in this? <laughs> It might sound quite simple. Can you encourage us in this? Are we resp I can tell you, we respond well to high expectations. We respond well to being encouraged. We respond well to being exhorted to step into the timeless and good design through the redemption of Jesus. Have high expectations of us for the way that we treat you and honor you and dignify you and call out the gifting in you. Have high expectations for how we guard our homes and our faith, and you. 
One of the things about church is that where these things are absent in the home, the church is intended to wrap around and fill the gap. So there shouldn't be, and I'm sure I get written off right now as a patronizing, patriarchal dinosaur, but there should not be any woman in this church who is feeling vulnerable and unprotected and uncherished and uncalled out to. There should be brothers in Christ who are able in some small and appropriate way to fill those kinds of gaps. And you need to help us learn how to do that. And you need to help us learn when we get it wrong. We will respond well if you are gentle and kind to being called out where we're not doing so well. We will. Men. (laughs) Help us, encourage us, cheer us on. And how should it feel to you? Appreciate I'm on tender ground here. How should it feel to you when this design is working well in the home and in the church particularly? Well, such is my sacrificial love for my wife that I watched Strictly Come Dancing with her last weekend. Um, and <laughs> Two episodes this weekend. Um, and there was a moment in that program which really took my attention. I won't say woke me up, but, you know, took my attention. <laughs> and you know how at the end of each dance, the celebrity and her professional, his professional partner, they come and, they come and get judged, don't they, and commented on by the judges. And uh, there's a couple called Catherine Tilsley, she's the celeb, and Johannes Radibi, he's the pro. And they were standing, and uh, if you could put this quote up, that Shirley um, Ballas, who's the chief judge, she said these words to... Catherine, and I know she was not intending some preacher guy to come and use them and say this is, a, this is a, a picture of the gospel, but I just could not help but be struck and moved by what she said as she addressed these words to this woman. She said to Catherine, you've got this beautiful man. You hold on to Johannes. You can afford to be free. Let him hold you. You can afford to put your arms and place them beautifully on his frame. <coughs> that he's given to you. Don't grab him, don't grip him, just trust him. And you, my darling, are gonna be a force to be reckoned with. And she was talking about a dance, I know. But it just moved me, and I think it's possible that sometimes people can express a, a more glorious and greater truth than they know. It just, I think, captures something of the essence that is intended between a godly husband and a godly wife. He gives his frame to her, gives of his body. He uses his physical strength for her and for her good. He is responsible and trustworthy. And so therefore, she doesn't need to control him or manipulate him or run from him. And when he initiates the dance, when he plays his part well, when he knows his steps and he knows the music and the beat that he's dancing to, she looks amazing. He knows it's not about him. He's not trying to get the glory and get the prestige and have the stage. He wants her to look amazing. He wants her to be a force to be reckoned with. Ladies, we as elders in the church, we want you to be a force to be reckoned with for the kingdom of God. And it's our desire as elders, as leaders, as husbands to play that part as well as we might in order that you might flourish. But (laughs) 
There must be some buts, aren't there, to that kind of, wow, what if? What if men dance like that? Let me give you some possible buts. You might be, you might be a single woman and say, I, I don't have that guy. Thanks for that. Just reminding me. No guy to dance with at the moment. You might be a man or woman who has been harmed by this guy. You know what it is as a man or a woman to be in a dance of some sort with a man and he is not playing his part with any sense of responsibility and trustworthiness and grace and godliness. And I don't think you need me to sort of hark back through the story of the Bible, which is honest about the failings of men and the story of history. You don't need me, I don't think, to give you the examples of where men fail to dance like this, to put it mildly. The Bible talks about it. History tells us about it. Some of you have lived through it, and some of you sit in it right now. So some of us ladies might be saying, I don't have that guy. Some of us men and women might be saying, I've been harmed by that guy. I've never seen the beauty of this dance that you talk about. And some of us men who are just some of us men might, I hope, be saying, I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. I know I'm not that guy. I would love to be the guy that is only described as trustworthy and responsible and who gives of his frame and himself selflessly every single day and week in order that she might be a force to be reckoned with. But I'm not that guy. Every week I fail in my marriage, in the life of the church, to be that perfect guy. In our marriage, Caroline promised to, uh, to submit to me speaking of the biblical language of Christ-like submission from a wife to a husband, and I felt it was appropriate that that was matched by another biblical cause, which is to sacrificially serve her, so we inserted that into our vows. I said, I promise to sacrificially. I don't, often I don't. I I wanna sleep. I want my food and my way and my priorities. And my agenda, to men, I hope all of us are looking at that guy and going, I'm, I'm not him. Now for some of us, we really will be thinking, I, I, I'm not him. I know I have failed the women who've been put into my orbit. And listen, I'm aware, as I touch on these things, I know I'm on delicate grounds. I'm not saying we've got, it's gonna be sold overnight now. I want to just put these things out there and say there's, this is a, this is, these are real live issues that we are living with and I want this series to be a space and this church to be a space and prayer within, within church and life groups and conversations and, and other things that we can help with with regards to counselling and deeper processes. I want this series to help us to begin to live in the good of what God imprinted on Adam and made possible in Jesus. And that's the thing. As much as you look at this guy, this this perfect guy, responsible, trustworthy, selfless, beautiful, all of us in some way, either as men say we're not that guy, or as women say, I haven't got that guy, I haven't seen that guy, I've only seen the opposite of that guy. For me, that guy points me towards the only perfect man there is. There's one man, one man 
who gave of his frame, whose body was shattered and broken for every man and woman who would express faith in him. There's one man who is ultimately completely trustworthy, who only ever used his authority and his power and his strength to serve and not oppress. If you are a single woman thinking about wanting to be married, that's a great desire to be have, but please prioritize your ultimate attention and gaze on the only perfect man there is. If you're a wife and thinking, this, I, my husband's not there yet, please ultimately prioritize your gaze upon the only perfect man there is. For us as men who know we are fractured and fallen and fallible in dramatic ways and small ways, there is grace this morning. Jordan Peterson talks about the, big, the, the two big things that he says to men are truth and responsibility. He lays them down, truth and responsibility. That's partly why he gets a great following. Jesus talked a lot about truth and responsibility over and over again. This is the truth of the kingdom of God and this is your responsibility to respond to it. But Jesus had a third thing that Jordan Peterson doesn't have and it's called grace. That's where Peterson's model falls down because you can exhort and you can encourage and you can challenge and you can smash on the shoulder and you can rah, rah and it has some degree of motivating effect, especially on young men and then you realize I'm not that guy and then what? the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus that restores us, that makes us whole, that gives men the courage and the humility to own their mistakes and errors. And like I say, I'm opening up something which is for some of us very, very sensitive. And it might be that you get some prayer this morning and begin to allow the Holy Spirit to work in that. Might be that you just use the space to worship and ask Jesus to minister to you. Might be that you need to have conversations with life group leaders or elders or other men and women leaders in the church. How can I begin to work through this? What would you advise? I wonder if um, the band could join me and just help us to begin that uh, process. I've gone on long. Well, I've gone on a bit longer than I thought I would, but I knew I'd be. I'd be longer, because as you can tell, I feel like there's things that God wants to say to us. And so I wonder whether Christy and the band could lead us uh, in a song or two. And I just want to, I guess, give you this space to respond as you feel you're being, being led, which might be to pray with your spouse if you're here with them. Might be to go and find another brother or sister in Christ in the church and talk and pray and together and prophesy. It might be that you need to ask God to really help you with some of the pain that's just been unlocked. And it also might be, and I hope it is this, that the Holy Spirit can come and put fresh faith in us, particularly men, to be these kinds of men. I really want to pray that in a moment for faith to rise, for courage to come, for humility to come, and for men to start to be the kind of men that God printed on Adam and made possible in the new Adam Jesus. So yes, there could be moments here, possibly profound moments of pain and processing that needs to happen. I also want there to be faith to rise and the smile of God to come down. That's my heart, and and I want to leave that with you. But could you stand? Thank you for... Stepping into this space, if you're brand new to King's Church, thank you for being here and being with us. I'm just going to pray and then we'll sing. Becca will lead us in, um, in response and, and the rest of the service. God, I thank you that you have got a, a good and timeless and beautiful design for both men and women who you love and cherish and have made equally valuable and precious in your sight. And we particularly ask this morning, that you would build us into a family where men are godly men and we're not being uh, just conditioned 
and we're not being scared to step out and we're not scared to own our vulnerabilities and our failings and our frailties. Right now, Holy Spirit, put faith in the heart of every man who would, who would be willing to receive it, to grow in God-like, Christ-like masculinity. May faith rise, courage come, dreams begin to be dreamt. May sin be owned, repented of, and worked through. And I pray for all of us, for whatever is landed. If it's anything that's of me, that's been just of me, may it be forgotten and dismissed. We just want what's of you to bless us, to change us, and to point us towards Jesus Christ, the only perfect person there is, who would unite every willing man and woman to himself into a covenant of love forever. We love you, Jesus. Help us, build us, bless us, we pray. Amen.